Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious Father, again, come and draw near to us that our hearts might know your presence. Come and make yourself known that we would be continually changed by that presence. Plant your word deep within our hearts. Lead and guide us to lay hold of your word. To lay hold of your command and your promise. To lay hold of your law and your gospel. That we would continually be pushed more and more into Christ himself. That we would know this union you have made between us. And thus go forth in Christ always. Knowing the life that he brings to us. We ask this all through that very same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. C.S. Lewis said, Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. I opened my Ash Wednesday sermon with that very same quote. It's one that has been rolling around in my mind for weeks now. And in many ways, I think that it's going to be a bit of a guiding hand for how I think about our passages for this season of Lent. I think it's perfectly appropriate to hear something like that during Lent, that good and evil both increase at compound interest, that whether it's a good deed or an evil deed, as you do one, it becomes easier to do the next, and then the next, and then the next, especially when it comes to evil. That one slip into wickedness, one stray thought that you indulge in, one stray action that you set yourself to do will pave the way to doing the next that is against God's will. And the next and the next and the next after that. And so Lewis hits upon an extremely important concept there that they increase good and evil. They build upon one another. And that is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of, of, of such infinite importance. And I think that's why it's such a glorious thing that the church has set aside this season of Lent. Many think of Lent as this time of utterly hard fasting, of bemoaning and berating yourself because of sin, of mistreating oneself in order to earn a little bit more favor with God. And it's a mistake if we're viewing Lent like that. Yes, at times in the past, the harshness of Lent could give that perspective that you're trying to earn something from God, but that has never been the intent of Lent. The intent of this season has been to prepare our hearts more deeply for that celebration, for that observation, for that recognition of both the death and the resurrection of Christ. And in order to more fully grasp and appreciate that time, the church set aside this season to remind us of our need for salvation in a deep way. And part of that reminder is the practice of those disciplines of fasting, of praying, of almsgiving. Because those are things that will draw you into Christ more deeply 
There are things that will drive you nearer to Christ because you need Him to accomplish even those little goals. The most basic sense of fasting, the most basic sense of praying, the most basic sense of almsgiving, you need Christ to accomplish those with the right heart of intention. And so little decisions make a difference in the long run. They begin to shape and mold you. And so this season is about shaping and molding our hearts a little more deeply. That we might be strengthened in the future to resist sin more deeply. That we might be strengthened in the future to walk that path of holiness that Christ has placed us upon. That path of being separated from everything else in the world. Being separated from that which is against God. And placed under His kingdom. Placed under His kingship in Christ. And on this day, this first Sunday of Lent, we reflect and hear about the temptation of Christ Himself. But we hear it connected to the creation and the fall. As well as Paul's superb explanation of the two Adams. That these are brought together in order that we might more deeply appreciate what is happening here in this temptation. And as we reflect on this temptation, let us take a moment to reflect on creation and fall. For that leads to where Christ is right now. As we just heard at the creation of the world, on that during all that creation time, chapter 1, recounting the big picture of creation, those six glorious days of work being done with a seventh day to rest. In many ways, chapter 2 of Genesis zooms in, I think, on that day six as it speaks of that creation of man of the creation of the garden to place man in, of the creation of those animals that are a part of that garden. As God is leading and forming Adam to help him understand what he is to do in this world. And in the midst of that garden, there was a tree placed. Two trees, in fact. There was the tree of life. To partake of it was to live in life before the Father. But there is also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told Adam that he could eat of all the trees in the garden save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. To eat of that tree is to live in disobedience to the Father. To eat of that tree is to turn from the Father's good will for Adam and turn to his own decisions. And that is what happens with the eating of that fruit. When Adam and Eve eat of that fruit, they are laying hold of good and evil. They are laying hold of discovering the nature of good and evil apart from God's guidance. After having read Lewis's other book, Paralandra, about the planet Venus, I came to realize the reality of a paradise being somewhere else, that the whole point of the Garden of Eden, the whole point of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to teach good and evil. But the teaching of that good and evil was not to be through disobedience. The teaching of good and evil was to be through simple, faithful obedience to the Father. Obeying the word that He gave. And so ultimately, God is not withholding the knowledge of good and evil from Adam and Eve, but he's trying to teach them the path of wisdom for knowing good and evil. By denying this one tree, 
He is leading them forward toward obedience and understanding and wisdom that flows out of faith and trust. But instead, Adam and Eve take hold of that fruit and they eat it. And thus, they become darkened in their minds and their hearts. Their wills become bent. Their natures become corrupted because they pursue good and evil by their own path. Instead of allowing God to slowly teach them good and evil, they lay hold of the knowledge immediately and thus fall into sin because of the serpent's temptation. They follow the temptation of the serpent and allow wicked desire to form in themselves to lay hold of that fruit for themselves, thinking that God is denying them something by not letting them eat of it. Instead of Eve, is the entrance of sin into this world. It is the entrance of corruption, the entrance of death, the entrance of our brokenness and our need for redemption and salvation. In the midst of this sin, God does eventually come to Adam and Eve. And when they finally confess to Him what they have done, He does curse them. He does bring disciplines upon them that all of creation is changed because of their sin. But He gives a glorious promise in the midst of all of that. He says, I will put enmity between you, you serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That ultimately, from the woman will arise one who will crush the serpent's head, who will overcome the sin that the serpent has deceptively brought into this world. That though there is an entrance of sin, there is a promise of hope, there is a promise of a greater salvation to come, there is a promise of God working to accomplish His will, working to accomplish something new in the midst of fallenness. And that's where we come into Jesus' temptation and the actual overcoming of sin. Here in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, we hear of this temptation of Christ. And while this is an overcoming of sin, it is not the total, absolute overcoming of sin in this one act, but it is a thorough overcoming of it by Jesus. Here in the wilderness, he is being tempted. And who drove him into the wilderness? Who led him to be in the wilderness? Why is he out in the wilderness to be tempted anyway? He is there because the Spirit led him there. The Spirit led him into this place where he could begin overcoming sin. For he has been baptized. And in being baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him and he heard the words of the Father saying, You, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. <coughs> At his baptism, Jesus received that confirmation of his sonship, the confirmation of his chosenness, the confirmation of his belovedness, the confirmation of his pleasing work to the Father. And in light of that upbuilding, in light of those grand and glorious words from the Father, Jesus goes out into the desert. He goes into the wilderness led by the Spirit. St. Mark describes it as being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And there he is tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he sat there and fasted. And after that time, he was hungry. 
some of the most human words spoken of Jesus throughout the scriptures. And of course, that makes sense. He is a man after all. He's not only God, but He is true man. And thus, He has a human nature that does need physical sustenance at this time. He was hungry, for He has been fasting day and night for 40 days. And thus, the tempter comes and tempts Him to turn stones into bread. But Jesus responds with simply the Word of God, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There he begins striking at the root of, Jesus, of Satan's temptation from the garden. Isn't this fruit lovely and good to eat? Shouldn't you lay hold of it and eat of it yourselves, Adam and Eve? Jesus, if you're the Son of God, you're hungry, aren't you? Well, why don't you turn these stones into bread? You are powerful enough to do that as the Son of God. You can change stone to bread. And though Jesus is hungry... He leans into the reality of who He is as God's beloved Son. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that I am to depend upon the words of God. That though, yes, bread is necessary for life and sustenance, I shall not live by that alone. I will not be dependent upon that in my life ultimately. My life is to derive itself from the very word that comes from the mouth of God. And then Jesus took him to the holy city, it says, and set him on the pinnacle and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down because isn't it written in the Psalms, the promises that he will command his angels concerning you and they will bear you up on their hands lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. For yes, it is in the scriptures a promise like that. There in Psalm 91, a glorious psalm of the accomplishments of God and caring for His people. But Satan leaves out the part about this one who is lifted up as the one who is doing the will of God, the one who is pleasing God, the one who is walking in the path that God has set for him. And of course, Satan certainly couldn't quote that part to speak of doing the will of God, for Satan is against the will of God at all times. And so Jesus reminds Satan, again, quoting from Scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. More and more He is overcoming sin itself in the world by resisting these temptations, by putting them down, by redirecting them back to the Word of God. And His last temptation here in the desert, again the devil took Him to a high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And He said to Him, All these I will give if you will fall down and worship Me. Once more, a temptation that strikes to the very heart of who Jesus is. The first one, looking for bread to fulfill his hunger, for he was truly hungry. The second one, acting in such a way as to force the Father to demonstrate his love for him once more. And this third one, striking at the heart of Jesus' mission to claim the kingdoms of the world as his own. For that is the work of the Messiah, to die and rise again, and through that death and resurrection, to claim the kingdoms, to draw people from all the various kingdoms of the world and to make them His. For that is the promise from Psalm 2, that you will be given the kingdoms of the world to simply ask for it, the Father says to His Messiah. 
Satan offers a different path to it. He offers the path of least resistance. He offers him the path of worshiping Satan, of worshiping one who is not the creator, of worshiping the creation, in fact, saying, I will give you everything if you but worship me. And once more, Jesus deflects and resists and destroys the temptation with the word of God. Be gone, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus knows the path before him is not an easy path. He knows that the path to the kingdoms of the world, to claiming them for his own, will be through death and resurrection. And yet, he will not stray from that path. He will resist the temptation of the devil because he is here to overcome sin itself. And here in these temptations, he is in that process by resisting and undoing what Adam has done. He recapitulates Adam he recapitulates Israel herself from the 40 years in the desert. He reenacts that moment in a new way. Adam and Eve fell to the temptation of, of Satan. They fell and led this whole world into the cursedness of sin and death. Israel, being the people of God, called out of Egypt, were called to enter into the promised land, and yet they failed in doing that, and so they were put to wander in the desert for 40 years while that one generation died out and the next came up. For they failed to follow through on the promises of God of simply trusting Him and doing what He had called and thus they were overcome by sin. And yet here, Jesus undoes that through these actions of temptation. By resisting it, He overcomes sin itself. And He begins to bring healing to us for we see that He can resist Satan. And he has resisted Satan on our behalf in order that he would be more fully our Messiah. He is doing something that we can never do without the sustaining power of God. John Donne wrote in his holy sonnet number one, But our old subtle foe so tempted me, so tempteth me, that not one hour I myself can sustain. We cannot sustain ourselves against Satan and his temptations without Jesus having resisted for us, without Jesus having resisted on our behalf. And thus Jesus lays that groundwork of overcoming sin, but not only of overcoming it, but ultimately being the one who overwhelms sin itself. And that is what we hear of in Romans 5 today, our final place to rest. For here we hear of the largeness of Christ's work. That though sin had come into the world through death, through one man, there is a free gift that is not like that trespass, Paul says. For many died because of the one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For that gift is not like, nor is it the result of that one man's sin. Judgment followed the one trespass along with condemnation. But St. Paul says the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. The free gift of grace, the free gift of righteousness, the free gift that God brings upon us. But why is it that God can bring such a glorious gift to us? Paul reveals it in verse 18 of Romans 5. He says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one, the one man's obedience 
the many will be made righteous. Jesus overwhelms sin by his one act of righteousness. But what is that one act of righteousness? What is the singular act that he has accomplished that becomes a gift to us? In the narrow sense, and I believe the primary sense that Paul is thinking up here is Jesus' willingness to die upon the cross, his submitting to the Father's will by dying upon the cross for our sins. That is certainly a singular act of righteousness, is it not? And the context drives us in that particular direction. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 8, St. Paul writes, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. First and foremost at the top of St. Paul's mind is the reality of Christ's death upon the cross, and that is the great act of righteousness. The one act that leads to justification in life. But I think we can ask why? Why would he submit unto, some kind, unto a death like that? Why would he die for sinners? Because there's a broad sense to this one act of righteousness. Christ's death upon the cross is based upon something. What is that something? Why would he do that? It is out of his trust in the Father. His death is based and founded upon the fact that he trusts in his Father. In fact, Jesus' whole life is one of faithfulness toward his Father. Everything Jesus did during his earthly life flowed from that one reality, that he trusted his Father and the calling that his Father had given to him. And thus that one act of righteousness is revealed in his death upon the cross. But it is one long act of righteousness that Jesus lived a sinless life. His whole life is one without sin. It's one in which he perfectly did what the Father had called upon him to do. And that flowed perfectly and purely out of his trust and faith in the Father. He was completely faithful in his actions because he perfectly trusted the Father. He put his life literally into the hands of the Father. And so in one sense, that act of righteousness is that perfect faith that led to a perfect life, that led to a perfect death for us. Each of Jesus' deeds and acts are done in perfect righteousness, yes. But that doesn't lead to multiple righteousnesses. He has only one righteousness. His act of righteousness on the cross dying for us sinners is that singular expression of the righteousness that was always His. The righteousness that continually flows out of who He is. It flows out of his, the entirety of His being. It flows from that fullness of faith He has toward the Father. And what does Paul say? He says that that righteousness is ours. He says that we are given a free gift of grace. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness 
reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He gives to us His grace and He gives to us that very righteousness that He has acted upon. He gives us righteousness though we are full of unrighteousness which flows out of our own unfaithfulness. We are marred and broken creatures to begin with. As I said, Adam's one act of disobedience bent all of human nature away from God. And it made us into a mass of untrusting creatures who would do as Adam and Eve did, run and hide from the God who created us. Adam's one act made us what we are. And Christ's one act undoes what Adam did. Christ's one act unmakes us and yet remakes us at the same time when that one act of Christ is gifted to us. And when that gift is given to us, it makes us into creatures who can now have faith, who can now trust this God who is our Creator, and who through Christ has become our Redeemer and Savior. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ's one act of righteousness that is abundantly made clear through His death on the cross for us, but is also abundantly made clear through His temptation, His resisting of Satan, His resisting of what our human nature yearns for. Our broken human nature wants to sin. Yet, Christ resists sin. He resists the temptations. He does not desire to sin. He does not desire to go against His Father's will. But yet, He is truly tempted to do so. But He resists by going back to the Father, by returning to His faith. And thus, His entire life is one act of righteousness. It is a life of faithfulness before the Father, a faithful action deriving out of the faith and trust that He has toward His Father. And that act of righteousness is gifted to us who turn toward Him. For it says, those who receive the abundance. And so we are called to turn, we are called to trust in Christ. And what does this free gift lead to, you may ask? It leads to life eternal life, a new kind of life. It's not just a quantitative life of life that never ends, eternal life that goes on and on and on. That is a secondary aspect of eternal life. The primary and first and foremost important part of it is that it's a different type of life, a new quality of life that replaces the death that Adam gave to us. Like I said, Christ's death Christ's work undoes and remakes us. It both removes something from us and gives us something to replace that. And thus Christ's one act of righteousness that is gifted to us removes the death that Adam had given to us and gives us new life. It gives us an eternal life. It gives us a life that will overcome the death that is ours in Adam. We receive a life that becomes ours because it's been gifted to us through that one act of righteousness that comes out of Jesus. And so Jesus resists temptation on our behalf 
in order that he would commit his one act of righteousness, in order that he would live in one act of righteousness, of righteous faithfulness toward the Father that then is gifted to us to enable us to walk that path. But yet without that gift of life, without that gift of the Spirit dwelling with us, we would fall into temptation continually. We would fall into the wicked desires that are part of our broken and sinful nature continually. And that's why in our collect of the day we say, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let us find you mighty to save. That we turn to Christ, we turn to the Father in light of the assaults of temptation upon us. And we trust the Father to know each of our weak points. And so, as those temptations assail us, and as we even fail, as we even sin, we can confess our need for one who is mighty to save. And so let us this day find that Christ is mighty to save because of His one act of righteousness. And let us walk through this Lent learning more deeply, day in and day out, that that one act of righteousness is mighty to save. And that that one act of righteousness is His coming quickly to our aid. That through it, He comes and helps us resist temptation. Through it, He comes and begins healing us more and more each day. And so may we find that He is mighty to save us from ourselves, save us from sin, save us from hell, and save us from death this day. As we prepare our hearts to remember His death that removes death from us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.